right, Julian first. So good to see you this morning. Glad you are here. Uh, if you're new here, by the way, we're so glad that you've joined us today. Um, we are at the tail end of a series called The Good and Beautiful God. And I don't want you to feel like you've missed out at all. Uh, you haven't missed out at all. In fact, you can go back to our website, JoliettNaz.org, and you can go on our media page where you can watch previous talks about the good and beautiful God. And you can catch up there. And if you don't have time to sit down and watch something for 30 minutes like most of us, I get that. We don't have time for that. Uh, if you don't have time, you can go to our podcast. You can just type in Jolia First Church in your podcast, and you'll find us there. Or if you can't find a podcast, what you do is just go to our media page. You'll see an icon for the podcast. Click on that. And you can listen on your way to work while you're working out. Or if you need white noise for some of those coworkers that just keep on pestering you, uh, feel free to put in those earbuds. Listen to me ramble on for half an hour, and you can tune everybody out. It's a great day. And we'll all go home happy. Uh, but I say all that to say, uh, if, you, if you've not been a part of this series, uh, what we are addressing is this. We have learned, we have learned myths and mistruths throughout our lives about God. If I could step in your shoes for a few minutes, we would find that there are people who have told you things about God that aren't true. And we believe those things about God that aren't true. And so this whole series has been designed, it has been designed to reshape our thinking, reshape our hearts and our minds toward a God that is good and beautiful. And so over the last five weeks, we've, we've asked this question, what are you seeking? We've also said this, that God is, he is good, he is trustworthy, he is generous, he is loving. Yeah, it's been really, really good. And, and it just so happens that um, some of my examples are obviously cutting a little bit too close to home. Because last week when I said something about somebody going to a Bears game on Sunday and how you won't earn your way to God by doing that. Apparently, um, they were a little bit red in the face because they're actually at the Bears game today. And his wife came up to me and said, did you, did, did you talk to him about this? Because, no, I didn't. But... Uh, just shows you how life real is. And I told him today, no worries, we're praying for your soul, and you'll just have to listen to the message on wrath later on. So it'll be good. But anyway, thank you for being here. Uh, would you pray with me before we begin? Lord, we take these next few moments, and we give them to you. May this time of teaching be your words, not mine. So we pray that you would be honored in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, typically we start out with a story, but this morning we're going to start with a test. Typically we start with a story, but this morning we're going to start with a test. Now, you should have been handed, you should have been handed a green and a red card before you walked in. If you could pull those out for me real quick, pull out that green and red card. If you didn't get a green or red card, what I need you to do is take the pen in front of you and write on one hand a big R for red, and on the other hand, a big G for green, because you need to participate in this one. Or you can just choose which hand you'd like and stick it up when we go. But here's what we're going to do today. Here's the test. I'm going to say a word. I'm going to say one word, and you are going to hold up green if you absolutely like it, love it, wants more of it. And if you hate it, can't stand it, don't like it, I want you to hold up the color red. Okay, so we're going to do a practice before we actually put things on the screen. We're going to do a practice real quick. It's one or the other. Love it green, hate it red. Um, here's a quick practice. We're just, the word snakes. I thought I like this one because I hate snakes. If I had a red card, I would hold up a red card because I absolutely can't stand. Okay, most of you are in. Okay, we got a couple greeners. Oh, boy. All right, you got the hang of it. Red or green, red or green. Here we go. You guys ready for this? Okay, first one is this. Ice cream. 
How many of you love ice cream? Absolutely. I'm going to raise my right hand as a way of saying yes. I absolutely love it. Ice cream. We all love ice cream. All right, next one. Not so easy. How about in-laws? I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> okay, if you're married or soon to be married, don't look to your neighbor um, and what card they're holding up. It's completely unhealthy to the conversation. In-laws. All right. Uh, next one is Pepsi. All right, we've got a few Pepsi people, and I'm assuming those of you who are holding up the red, you are Coke. By the way, Coke rules. Uh, Pepsi's for losers. Um, all right, Pepsi. Next one is the Packers. I think everything should. We've got one green. Okay. All right, a couple greens. Packers, I figured that one, right? All right, next one. The Kardashians. Some of you are like, who are the Kardashians? Uh, okay, well, um, okay, the Kardashians. All right, next one. 90s resurgent trends. I don't know if you've noticed, but the 90s have made their way into 2017. And by the way, I love it. Love 80s music, love 90s resurgent trends. Very good stuff. 90s. All right, next one. The movie It. I am scared to death. I would never watch that movie. I don't like horror movies. I'm scared to death of it. Okay, we're a mixed group there. The movie It. Uh, emojis. How many of you love emojis? Okay, we have a lot of people that like emojis. How many of you talk in emojis? That's all you do is just press emoji, 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 emoji. Okay, all right, emojis, good stuff. Netflix, oh, I love Netflix. Do you love Netflix? It's what keeps me up all night. I can't stop watching TV. Okay, we got a, oh, we got a couple haters. All right, uh, Amazon Prime. How many of you love Amazon Prime? Woo, I love it when they ship it in two days and I love the same day shipping button that they give me, right? Amazon Prime, only one of you, two of you hate it. Okay, all right, well, next one. Game of Thrones, how many of you love Game of Thrones? Okay, uh, not so much. All right, next one. Justin Bieber. I love the Biebs. I think he puts out some good music. Oh, uh, we've got some lovers and haters. Oh, we've got a lover here, that's for sure. Justin Bieber, all right. Next one. The beach. How many of you love the beach? I love the beach, absolutely. It should all be green. We got one red. That's okay, I won't point you out. Could you stand up? No, I'm just kidding, totally, totally kidding. All right, the next one. Uh, cats. All right, we've got a lot of lovers of cats. I'm assuming if you're holding red, you only love dogs. Okay, all right. And I think I've got one more. Uh, yeah, the person who is sitting next to you. The person sitting next to you. Uh, don't look. Just hold it up. Be honest in this moment. Uh, we should all have greens. All right. Hey, listen. Some of you are like, what is the point of this exercise? I'm so glad you asked today. Um, I don't know. No, I do know. Um, Here's, here's the reality. Here's, here's the truth for many of us, right? We feel very strongly. We have firm beliefs about things, right? We have opinions about stuff, and we believe strongly about something. So we either love it, we like it, we hate it, or we dislike it. We agree with it, we don't agree. But the reality is most of us will not, we will not live in the paradox continuum, right? We won't live in the middle. We're one or the other, You've got this, right? You're one of the, especially when it comes to politics and everything else, right? Sports teams, politics, uh, your friends, your coworkers, it's one or the other. You like them or you love them. And maybe even your spouse. But we, what I find interesting is there's a lot of conversation. There's a lot of conversation surrounding the millennial generation. I missed the millennial generation by two years, so I'm not a millennial. But what I find funny is this conversation uh, surrounding the millennial generation is very negative. It's extremely negative and toxic, in my opinion. And here's, I've come to the conclusion. I've done a little bit of research over the last couple of weeks, reading a book on millennials. And what I've learned is this. The reason why the baby uh, boomer generation and Gen X and everybody else can't stand, okay, apply, all right, we got that out of the way. 
the reason why we struggle with the millennial generation is for baby boomers, it's black and white. It's right or wrong. You're either left or you're right. It's one or the other. It can't be both. And what they're finding with millennials is that they do not live in a right or wrong world. They do not live in a black or white world. In fact, they live in the paradox. They love, they love not taking one side or the other. And they believe, they believe that living in the middle can produce, living in the middle of black and white can produce a stunning gray of life. If you could live a gray life and it'd be a great life, that would be interesting. But they are a both and kind of generation. A both and kind of generation. Now here's, here's the thing. I'm wondering if we could make a case, if we could make the case that the way millennials see life is how we should perceive God. That the way that the millennials see life, the both and, is the way that we should perceive and see God. Especially, especially when it comes to talking about a God who is holy. Now, I don't know if you know this, but you and I struggle yeah, this is the conversation for today. God is holy. Now, before you tune out, you're like, yeah, 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 this is going to be a boring... Just trust me. This is going to be a good, good talk, I promise. But you and I struggle with the holiness of God. You may not know it at the time. You, you may not think about it, but you and I struggle with the fact that God is holy. And here's why. If we could sit down and we could have coffee together. I don't know if you like Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks. You can hold up whatever card you want. Uh, but if I took you to your favorite coffee shop and we sat down, my bet is you and I, would express that we have questions about a God who is holy. And here's why. Here's why we struggle with a God who's holy. The first one is this, is that many of us see God as wrathful. That God is wrathful. Right? That, that God is this angry monster who sits up in the sky and he just can't wait. He can't wait for you to mess up. He is angry. He's vengeful. He just can't wait to punish you. In fact, do you remember this? Remember the first time that you had a drink and you had a little bit too much of that drink and you had way too much to drink and you felt really bad the next day and you were just waiting for God's impending doom to come down and strike you? Or maybe, or maybe you cheated on a test. I know none of you have cheated on a test, but I have cheated on a test when I was in high school. Really not interested in education when I was in high school. Uh, got more serious when I got into college, especially when I was paying for it. But anyway... Uh, you remember this, right? You, maybe you cheated on a test, or maybe you went to a purity, purity conference and soon found yourself in the backseat of a car with somebody you shouldn't be with. Or maybe you're driving down Highway 80 and you, somebody cut you off, and um, you really wanted to give them the pinky, but something else came up instead, and you just couldn't help yourself. It was an emotional, passionate, driven moment, right? We have these moments in our life, and what we expect is that God is going to annihilate us. I can remember this. When I was in high school, I would leave my girlfriend's house at 10.55. And I knew that if I, if I left at 10.55, I could get home in five minutes to my house. But there was a caveat. The caveat was I had to do about 85 or 90. And I also had to run a stop sign to get there on time. If I stopped at that one stop sign on that backcountry road, I would be a minute late. Now, there were, I don't know how many number of nights, I was driving home way too fast, and I remember thinking, I wonder if God is up there. Not only does he see that I'm about to run the stop sign, but he's got everything else in mind that I did tonight. And he's going to send a car careening the other way and will T-bone me and kill me because he's so angry. This is the God that I grew up with, that God is angry and wrathful. Now, there's the other side. 
Some of us have grown up with the God that he is all loving. That he is this celestial, benevolent being upstairs that doesn't really care what you do at all. He just loves you for who you are. You couldn't make any mistakes. And what he becomes is a Teddy Ruxpin kind of God. You remember this creepy Teddy Ruxpins? You put batteries in a creepy cassette tape in the back and he talks to you and his eyes open. He says, hi, I want to be your friend. Really weird. Uh, really creepy. I had one. Um, but you're, that's what we turn God into. This, this God that loves us so much, he just wants to be your friend. And what we say about that God is that he doesn't care about the things that I do. And what we really want to say, and this is even hard to say, is that God does not care about your sin. That he does not care about my sin. Now, here's the reality. We live in one of those two camps. We live in one of those two camps. You either think that God is wrathful and that he wants to punish you, or you think that God is this celestial, benevolent, loving being upstairs who could care less what you do. He just loves you because he thinks you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. It's one or the other. And the problem with that is we end up making Jesus who we want Jesus to be. In fact, a great guy named Thomas Jefferson did this. I don't know if you know this, but uh, Thomas Jefferson loved science and he loved Jesus. You, believe it or not, you can do both. We think that's okay here, that you can love science and you can love Jesus. The problem was, was Jesus' actions did not meet up with Thomas, Thomas Jefferson's science. And so what he would do is he would cut out the miracles of Jesus. Oh yeah, when he fed the 5,000, when he walked on water, when he healed blind people, Thomas Jefferson was like, absolutely not, took scissors, cut those out. And he also took teachings of Jesus... He took the teachings of Jesus, and he cut those out as well. The ones that he thought were way too high, we couldn't live up to, he cut those out. And at the end, he got the Jesus that he wanted. And I think that's what we do. We are one or the other. But the question I want to wrestle with today, the question and, and, and the tension that I think you and I wrestle with is this. Can a God, can a holy God who is love have wrath at the same time? Can a holy God, who is love, be wrathful, extend wrath at the same time? Now, we've been saying something over the last uh, five weeks, and we say this, that if we want to understand the life of God, if we want to know the nature of God, if we want to understand a God that is holy, then our understanding of God must be consistent with the God Jesus reveals. Some of you already got this line by now. You're going to see it every week. That our understanding of God must be consistent with the God that Jesus reveals. And today, and today, what I think we might find is that there is a God who maybe lives in the paradox, who maybe lives in the in-between, who maybe lives in the both and, who actually looks more like a millennial and less like the baby boomers and maybe the next gen. Pretty interesting. So this morning, we're going to look at a story. Before we get to the story, i got to give you a little bit of context because it's essential to where we're headed today. All right, so we're looking at a story in the book of John. If you're not familiar with John or you're new to the Christian faith, we have four people who wrote four accounts of Jesus' life. And what is interesting about John is he um, was somebody who was with Jesus at every moment of his life. He was a cousin of Jesus. But he takes us into uh, conversations that other writers don't take us into. In fact, his gospel, his gospel has uh, happenings and events that other writers don't have. And so his, his gospel is pretty interesting to us. Now, there is a bit of controversy surrounding today's story that we're going to share with you today. 
the controversy is this. The, the story that we're going to look at today wasn't actually found in the early manuscripts of John's Gospel. In fact, people believe that it was added later, and sometimes they put it at the end, sometimes they put it at the beginning, but they, they're not even sure who wrote it. Some people think that the gospel writer Luke wrote this story. And so the big question is not a matter of who wrote the story, but why. Hang with me now. Why is this story placed in John's gospel? Okay, everybody say that. Why? I know you're asking why because you're so into this. Why? Why would they place this story in John's gospel? And here's why. Just like we wrestle... Just like we wrestle with the tension of who is God, what is the nature of God, that is the dilemma of today was also the debacle of yesterday. You see, if you look at the story that we're going to look at in just a minute, before the story takes place, before the story takes place, there is this question concerning whether Jesus was the actual Messiah. There was this question as, is this the person who can save us? Yes or no? Is this the guy? And then following the story, Jesus comes and he begins to tell us about who he is. And we find that in front of a bunch of religious leaders, they say, your testimony, Jesus, is invalid. And so the question, the question that they wrestled with, that you and I wrestle with, is who is Jesus? And here's the why. I think the reason why they centered this story around this question is so there would be no question. The reason why they centered this story around this very question is so there would be no question about who God is in his very nature. Especially, especially when we are talking about a God that is holy. So this morning we're going to be in John 8. John 8. I'm not going to read the story to you. I'm just going to tell you the story. And there's a few lines that I want to pick out as we work through this story. Together. So, in John 8, we find that Jesus gets up early in the morning, he goes to the temple, he sits down uh, on the ground, and he begins to teach. And people love Jesus' teaching. They love the way he teaches. They are captivated, they are mesmerized, but there also is some uncertainty about the very things he's teaching. So there's lots of questions, there's a lot of debate, it's, it's a good thing. But out of Jesus' periphery, he notices, he notices an angry mob. And he notices that this mob is carrying a young lady whose hair is let down. She is half-dressed, and she seems distressed. Now, the group that is carrying this young lady just so happens to be this wonderful group, this religious sect called the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are like the law keepers. This is kind of important to where we're going. They're the law keepers. They know every single law, and so they believe that the way that they bring about heaven on earth is by keeping every single law. There were 633, I think. But they also had their own tradition on top of that. So they were like the extra law followers. These were the law keepers. If they saw you doing something wrong, if they caught you doing something wrong, if they thought you were doing something wrong, they would take you before a religious group. They would take you before a judge, and they would have you tried. But these were the people, these were the people who thought that they were perfect. In keeping the law. And so they bring this lady, they bring this lady to Jesus and they say this to her. They say, we have, we have, this woman was sleeping with somebody else. This woman was sleeping with somebody else and we have caught her in the act of adultery. We have caught her in the act of adultery. Now I know looking at this sentence, we would not pick out the words caught caught in. But I think it's essential to the story this morning because they caught her. 
Now, here's why that's so important. They could only bring, the Pharisees could only bring somebody before a judge if they physically, visibly saw her in the middle of an act. They couldn't bring her if there was rumors. They couldn't bring her if there was hearsay. Yeah, hearsay. They couldn't bring her if if she was in a compromising circumstance. The only way that they could bring her before religious leaders is if they physically caught her, which means they saw her in the middle of this. Now, this is just a general rule. I'm going to help you out a little bit. But when people catch other people sleeping with people they're not supposed to be sleeping with, people tend to get a bit unhappy. And you can imagine that the Pharisees in this moment were so outraged by what they witnessed, that by what they saw with their own eyes, they were filled with passion. They were filled with emotion. Those two words are essential today. They were filled with passion and emotion. And they wanted some sort of response. They wanted some sort of judgment upon this woman because they physically caught her in this moment. And so listen to what they say next. They say this. In the law, Moses has commanded that we would stone such a woman. I find this statement quite interesting. The reason why I find this interesting is actually in the Pharisees' emotion, after catching this young lady, having uh, this moment with somebody else that she's not supposed to be with, they bring her before Jesus and they begin to ask him all these questions and they want to stone her. But the problem is the Pharisees begin to break the law themselves. And here's why. You could not bring a woman... You could not stone a woman that was caught in the act of adultery unless she was engaged to somebody else. The other rule was, if she was caught, then you would have to bring. You would have to bring the man also. So they don't even bring the man in this case. They just bring the woman. So the Pharisees, the, the, you know, the law followers, the keepers of the law, are breaking the law. And what I need you to understand is, it is in this passion, it is in this emotion... That the human response is to get revenge and vengeance. And we begin to see a sort of wrath that is put out on this woman. They want execution. They want stoning. They want this woman dead. Passion and emotion. I don't know. Is this kind of how you view God? That when we mess up, that when we make mistakes... There is this God who kind of drags you in front of the judge and is just waiting to bring vengeance and wrath upon the very mistake that you made. Or do you question, is God really like that? Is this who God is? Is this who Jesus is? In fact, the Pharisees are so, like, they're so interested in what Jesus is doing. They ask him this very question following that statement. They ask them this question. Jesus, what do you say? Now, what I find interesting in this text is not so much what Jesus says next, but it's what he does. It's what he does in this moment. Notice that Jesus doesn't get in the Pharisee's face. He doesn't get in the woman's face and tell her what a horrible person she is. He doesn't yell at the crowd. He simply begins to kneel down and he begins to write in the earth. Now, I could do a whole other sermon just on that phrase right there, but we don't have time for that today. But he kneels down and he writes, takes his finger and he begins to write in the dust. And instead, 
Instead of this outrage, instead of this screaming and yelling and this emotion, Jesus is calm. He is collected. He is thoughtful about what he is doing. In fact, he is going to respond responsibly in this moment. He's going to respond responsibly. And what I love is I think this is what the wrath of God looks like. See, we can't understand the wrath of God because we are driven as humans by emotion and passion. Where God is driven by what we call pathos. And here's the difference. Uh, passion is this. It is, a, it is a, an emotional convulsion and loss of control. Passion, you and I, we, we do this all the time. It's an emotional convulsion and loss of control. Whereas pathos, which is what we see Jesus doing in this moment, is an act formed with care or intention. This is an act formed with care, love, and intention. This is the wrath of God. And what we find is that God's wrath is restorative. God's wrath is restorative. Now, that's not on the screen. That's a free line. That's a freebie. You should write that down, though, because that's, that's like at the heart of what we're getting at today, that God's wrath is restorative. And so the conversation continues. The conversation continues. Jesus says to the, to the people that had brought her in this moment, who, who caught her in this act, who were outraged at what she had done, he said to her, if you are without sin, why don't you, if you've never done any wrong in your life, why don't you go ahead and throw the first stone? And we know the story, right? They drop their stones and they walk away. And I think the reason why they walk away, the reason why they walk away is because, because they know this. The humans, humanity, humanity does not have the capacity to bring about the wrath and judgment of a holy God. The human soul does not have the capacity to bring about the judgment and wrath of a holy, loving God. Right? When somebody wrongs you, when somebody says something to you that you don't like, when, when, when a spouse or a friend or a co-worker hurts you, inside do we respond, respond calm and collected and responsibly? No. We are filled with emotion. We are filled with, I want to get back at you for this. There is a wrath that is displayed. We respond out of passion. And Jesus responds out of pathos. And listen to what he says. I love what he says to her. He says, woman, if, if, if who here judges you? Look around. Is there anybody here who's going to cast the first stone? And she says, no, sir, there is nobody here. And he says, well, neither do I condemn you. But listen to what he says next. Listen to what he says next. He says, go now. Go now and sin no more. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. The reason why I love this statement is because this is a both-and moment. Jesus does not allow her to leave without addressing, addressing the most important, important thing in her life. And he says, go and sin no more. And I think what he's saying to her is this, listen, I need you to live a holy life like I am holy, but this does not mean that you have to be perfect. Holiness is about belonging in the presence of. That was a really good line. Some of y'all should be saying amen at this moment. It was so good. Holiness is not about perfection, but it is about belonging in the presence of. 
And here's what I know about God. Here's what he expresses in this moment about a holy God is that you and I and even this adulterous woman belong in the presence of a holy, loving God, even in the midst of some of our most unholy moments. Do you know what I love about Jesus? This was one of the most holy men ever to walk the face of the earth, yet he hung out with the most unholy people all the time. And you and I belong. That's what holy is. We belong in the presence of. And the reason why Jesus addresses her sin and says, go and sin no more, is because he believes that she belongs in his presence. But he addresses the very thing that separates us from his presence. When there isn't a presence, there's an absence. But typically it's an absence on our part. And he says it. Leave the sin. Now, I don't care how you define it. I define sin as simply doing something other than what God designed you to do. Sin can be a separation. It can be a living hell in this moment. However you want to define it, it it is a selfish act on our part. And Jesus says, as long as you continue to be selfish, as long as you continue to do something other than what I designed you to do, not by my choice, but by your choice, you will not belong in the presence. By your choice. And so he instructs her, leave your life of sin. Now, here's what I love even more. One of my favorite writers said this this week. He says, love does not rest. Love does not rest as long as there's inequality in love. Love does not rest as long as there is inequality in love. Here's what I want you to know today. God loves you very much, and he has created you with the capacity to love him equally. I know that sounds weird, and I know that we can't fathom. It seems unconscionable that we could actually love God as much as he loves us. And even in the midst of our sin, even when he wants us to belong, he is still pursuing us, he is still running after us, he is still wooing us, because his love will never relent as long as there's inequality. As long as you and I choose not to love God by our actions, by doing something other, by by living a life of sin, His love is still there. And his goal is for you to love him as much as he loves you. So, it is a both and. I think God who is holy is love. He is love. But he also extends wrath at times. Calm, collected, reasonable a thought of care and intention with the act of restoring you. God's wrath, God's wrath is restorative. question I want to ask you is, if God's wrath didn't exist, if God did not care about your soul, if God didn't care what happened to you, if he didn't care about precious people and the evil in their lives, would he be a loving and good God if he had never addressed this woman's sin? If he had never addressed our sin? God is holy. And when you hear that word holy, I want you to be reminded that you belong in the presence of. And that God's love will never rest as long as there's inequality in love. God's wrath is restorative. It is the millennial position. God is a millennial. Can you believe that? He is a both and this morning. So here's what I need you to do.
All right. Over the last six weeks, we've done practical things, uh, practical practices to help you. Here's what I know. Wholeness is essentially holiness. Wholeness is essentially holiness. And I think that wholeness is actually a life well lived. It is. But sickness, sickness is dysfunction. And here's the dysfunction and the sickness that we live in. We live in a hurrying sickness. I bet if I could open your phone or if I could look at your, do they even call them like day planners? I don't even know. Uh, calendar, whatever it is. If I could open your calendar, whether it's on your device, in your pocket, whatever it may be, I bet I would see a schedule that's packed. We have no space in life. We have no margin in life. In fact, what we don't understand is that not having margin in our life actually reduces our joy, our happiness, and our sense of, um, our sense of belonging. It reduces our wellness. And so what I want you to do is this. I need you this week. Uh, you're going to be, you've already been handed cards or you'll be handed cards uh, that will remind you this week. I need you to take some time this week and begin to think about things that ne maybe need to be removed from your life. Listen, you don't have to say yes to everything unless I call you. If I call you, then the answer is yes, Pastor Brad. I will be there. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But, uh, or, or the famous one that I like is, hey, I'll pray about that. No, you won't. Just say no. Um, <laughs> Oh, so true. You know it. Um, but I need you to say no to some things. right? I need you to go through and say, is this essential to my life? Is this essential to my family's life? Is this essential to my kid's life? And if not, can I cut this out? Should I cut this out? Maybe you need to take, well, let's go back to a few weeks ago where we actually took time for silence. Maybe you need to take a few moments of silence every day. Every day. Maybe the reason you're sick is because you just don't have time for God. I know the, the times that I feel the most anxiety in my life is the times where I'm not with God, experiencing his peace. So maybe you need to carve out some silent time. You need to say no, and you need to cut out the important things or not so important things in your life. That's what I want you to do. And the goal is to move you. The goal is to move you from a hurried sickness to a holy wholeness. That's my prayer.